Dear Diary, the Aquarian spirit knows how to flow through me. Methods I only understand, making anything out of nothing, and dancing because it's a community service. I do seem to believe in magic. Episode 2, The Starry Aquarian. Welcome to the second episode of Musings with Mona. I'm your host, Mona Mone. <laughs> we're alive, like we're here. <laughs> this episode was crazy because I originally wanted to... So basically my idea and my vision for this podcast was that I wanted to post two episodes every month. And one episode would be like a long form episode that would go in depth in a certain category or in a certain top on a certain topic. So we would have a long form episode where we would go um, in depth into a particular topic. And then the second episode, I wanted it to be like a quick hits episode where basically we spend like 20, 25 minutes on topics that fit within the muse create learn kind of categories that I made for myself and then yeah these would be like the two episodes um that I'd post every month but in preparing for this episode it was way longer than fucking thing it was way longer than 20 minutes because I had recorded already the musings episode or the musings like section that was going to be in the quick hits and I was recording and I was telling my story and then, like, I see the clock is, like, already at, like, 20 minutes. I'm like, hey, I didn't even get halfway the story. So, quickly, I had to adapt and realize that, oh, quick hits, we're going to have to think about that a little deeper because some things can go into quick hits and other things probably need a bit more time. Or it could just be that I just like to talk and I, you know, the idea of limiting myself to 20 minutes is a little too daunting right now. So, that's where we're at right now. <laughs> but... Today's episode, actually before I get into today's episode, how are you guys doing? How is everyone doing? I hope that everyone's doing well. We're in February, so we made it to the second month of 2023. I hope the year is already going well for you guys. Um, It's been, it's been a, a time so far, like it's been a time. Um, <laughs> like, Besides working on the podcast, my other big preoccupation has been school, of course, like it's the fourth week or we just finished the fourth week of school and it just hey I'm like I don't know I really don't know if school is one of those things that you actually like get used to in the sense that you you really just like I don't know if it's just me or if it's just like I've I feel like the past three years has completely warped my mind that I'm not really capable to get into the grind set of school like school is just kind of like it's there I do it and I give time to it and everything but like after the time that I give to it I'm just like okay I'm over with this thing like it's let's move on to the next thing because I just can't get myself into that rhythm because once I've gotten myself into the rhythm the person that I am is just not somebody who's particularly interesting so 
so yeah anyways school school is the other preoccupation and besides school it's just trying to stay sane of course <laughs> like that's really what it is every day isn't it trying to stay sane and school so those those have been my biggest preoccupations these past days but yeah um thank you guys for being here for the second episode the episode that's actually going to be up on the streaming services luckily god bless and thank you to everyone who has like interacted whether you liked you shared you commented you listened to the first episode i really appreciate it if you took the time to listen through the whole thing because even though it's only the first episode it feels like i've been doing this podcast for eight, like this podcast for ages and that's how i know like this is the thing that is my this is my element in a way because it really doesn't feel like a this huge barrier where I have to think too deeply about oh, what am I going to do to 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 give content to the people. Um, there's still a lot of work that goes behind it, of course, which is why this episode is quite like the last 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 minutes of Friday. But we're 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 adjusting. We're you know I'm a student. I also work as well, and like I said, my mental well being is the most important. So. It's going to take time to adjust, but, you know, I'm really excited. There's, there's, there's some resistance. I have to say, I have to be honest, but like, there's also excitement. And I know a lot of that resistance is usually just the parts of me that is afraid of things for very valid reasons, right? Like there are so many things that already just imposing this first episode that I've seen and I've experienced that I'm like, hmm. If it's like this, uh, just the first episode, I can't imagine how it's going to be when we put a bit more time and consistency behind this project. But I'm not here to worry about that stuff. I'm not here to let those worries stop me from creating. So regardless, I'm going to stick with myself. That's that's the whole mantra of this year. It's regardless, I'm going to stick with myself. Um, also, I want to say happy Black History Month to my Blacks. Like... <laughs> Happy Black History Month to all Black people out there. I hope you celebrate well. I hope you, you know, Black History Month is all the time. Like, we know this, whatever. But, like, I just hope you you especially take this time to resist a little bit and to, to take some for yourself. Um, and everyone who's non-Black, like, you can move to the side this month respectfully. Um, but, yeah, let's, let's, let's get into this episode. That's enough about all this blabber. Let's just get into this episode, guys, because this episode is exciting. I'm so excited for this episode. So... 2023 for me is definitely definitely the year to dance why in 2022 musically this is my first reason musically there was a lot more trends in the popular music that was being released or in the music that was going viral let's say even on tiktok of music that gets you moving music that kind of calls for you to move your body but also music that often you dance with other people or often you're listening to with other people so house music garage music jungle drum and bass i'm a piano afrobeat still booming as well um i'm not you know a music trend forecaster i'm not even a, i don't even know how to talk about music in a way that sounds like i am particularly informed about music i just know the music that i like and i just know the music that 
I like shows up in particular ways in popular culture. And for me, seeing this kind of music trend in 2022 was amazing because it really pointed to the fact that people want to move their bodies again and move their bodies, not just, you know, listening to good beats and whatever, but also with other people. The second thing, too, is 2023 is definitely going to be the year of touring coming back a lot more. I mean, we already saw Beyonce release the tickets to her Renaissance tour. um, Taylor Swift is going on tour. All these big artists, like a lot of big artists are going on tour and it's kind of blinking my mind. And I think also it's just like there's you know in 2022 it was really like okay we want to be outside now it's been two years that we wasn't able to be outside but i feel like 2023 now really is a year where people are going to come to appreciate what dancing and collectivity dancing with other people really comes like what it really means and my third reason which isn't really based on anything scientific or facts or necessarily that could be observed But I just hope that 2023 is a year that we come to, we try to reconnect more with our bodies and we are talking and really taking action when it comes to ideas around releasing and mourning and processing. Because I don't know about y'all, but the last three years have been hard. Like, I don't know about you guys. I don't know if, you know, y'all was maybe cooling it, but for me, it was difficult. Um... So I think it's really interesting to think about being able to be in a position where you can just release and everything. And you know what? If the popular culture doesn't necessarily like match this sentiment of 2023 being the year of dance, I don't give a fuck. For me, this is my year to dance. Now, the title for this episode, why is it called The Starry Aquarian? So... One day, I had gone to a cafe because I was like, you know what? Let me go to a cafe to do some work. I don't even think I, I don't even know if I didn't work to be honest because I'd be going to these cafes and nothing gets done. But I went to a cafe and then the cafe had closed, so I was getting out of the shop and then right next to me there's a right next to the cafe there's a comic book shop, and there was a poster for an event called Disco Ninety Three, and it was basically just a like it, it's a disco night like as a night where you would just be dancing all nights to disco and it was really intriguing to me because first and foremost the poster was really cool it was very simplistic and I'll post the poster um on my tumblr where I'm trying to build some kind of an archive I don't really know what the logistics would be because I'm getting back onto tumblr after since I was there when I was 14 but I'm going to post it on there so you guys can see the actual uh, poster. It was really cool. It was really simplistic. And I seen that it was just going to happen on January 21st, which it was really beautiful because, number one, there was another event that was happening on January 21st, but the entry point to get to that event was kind of crazy for me. So I was kind of like, okay, well, this is, this is not it. This event was very much just like anybody can come. It's a dance night, everything like that. And secondly, this day of January 21st was very conspicuous. Like, the conditions for this night were oddly astrologically aligned. 
everything just seemed to make sense that night and now in retrospect i'm realizing that like this it was actually very freaky for them to host what they had to host on that particular night because january 21st is first and foremost two days before my birthday so i was like listen my birthday is going to be on a monday this year let me celebrate well on this day it was day two of aquarius season the new moon was happening in aquarius on that day and also the new moon and the sun were opposing black moon lilith which let me give you guys a quick explanation in the zodiac aquarius represents collectivity society humanity just what are what in the whole cycle when you get to aquarius it's thinking about ideas of like what am i here to give to all of society right to the world then the new moon represents intentions new beginnings it's it's when the the moon is the darkest in the sky and then black moon lilith essentially is the empty focal point between the furthest point of the of of the moon from the earth and in astrology this usually represents like the dark feminine or kind of like just the the wild side it's very witchy let's say in its energy so that the black the the sun and the moon were opposing 90 degrees from the black moon lilith so it was very interesting energy on this night but let me talk about who was organizing the event so the event were organized was organized by two local djs dj sazy and just nasty shout out and also three guys who came from Montreal. So you had Boogaloo Jones, Max Miaja, and Emiliano Shamandi who were supporting. And then also at the event, there was this really cool guy who was doing playing drums, Shadin Ladu. Shout out. And I went with a friend. Um, and me, I really decided to dress up. So the thing is, originally in my mind, I really wanted to dress up very disco-esque. Actually, that's a lie. I actually wanted to be, I wanted to give TLC, Aaliyah, and Janet Jackson. Like, that's what I wanted to give. But I was looking through all these outfits. I was like, da-da-da. I was like, damn, what was I going to do? So when I went to the thrift store, I was looking all over, but just got a couple of things. And essentially, my outfit is quite... It represents Black Moon Lilith very well. Black Moon Lilith and Leo, I didn't even mention. So you had this low, like, dramaticism kind of vibes about it. But it was basically... I was just wearing, like, a a black leather skirt, white a wife beater that I cut. And then, like, this knit shirt that I put a bunch of rings in and everything. I don't have a proper outfit of the or a picture of the outfit, but that's essentially that. Picture that in your mind. Now, where was this party? Where was this experience, guys? So, it was at this lounge that was in a basement downtown. But the thing is, this shit isn't, like, this place isn't even advertised online, like, if you search up the address, it shows you, like, an empty office space. It was actually kind of crazy. So, I was like, okay, wait a minute. I, I really like this vibe. I think this vibe is making a lot of sense. And essentially, so, on this night, you go and you enter into the, the whatever space. It's basically one of those, like, multi-spaces where upstairs is, like, a bunch of offices. Downstairs is the lounge. And you go downstairs and there's these pink lights, like, that kind of, like, bombard the whole of downstairs. 
and then you go down and you open the door and you get into and you have the lounge where there's like the open dance area where there's a bunch of disco lights going and then you had on the other side the bar and the lounge area just a very simple layout very ordinary layout where the fun was very much just about being there having the cool music the djs were playing on spin vinyl like having the really cool music being with you know somebody that i trust as well and just having a good time being in a space where other people were also dancing like this it was like damn like this is my element i feel so good and i i will be honest the week after was difficult because my birthday week is usually very difficult and you know whatever but in the end i felt very grateful for this event and i talk about the event in more in depth on my piece about dance about the body about erotic on my medium so check that out read that out if you want to go if you want to see hear about me going a little more in depth about the event and everything but well, i can tell you just to sum it up me i'm a simple person i love to dance i love to dress up i love a cool event poster that particular night i was feeling quite social and up to this point so i had stopped pole dancing i believe actually in november i think but dancing ever since i started getting into it i started appreciating dance not only for the sport that it is and for the art that it is but how it helps me feel less of a less like a stranger in my own body and i've always I've come to to think of dance as a release, as something that helps release tightness and, and, and feelings of strangeness in my body. And also, I had started reading Audre Lorde's essay on the erotic and had taken particular interest in eroticism and in sensuality and how these ideas and terms can be sources of power. So, as the title suggests, this episode is a learn episode. And with these learn episodes, what I would like to do is dive deep into a topic and refer to outside sources and musings and outside writing that kind of support my point or support what it is that I'm talking about. And today, we are talking about dance. And dance as a creation of trust and care through the body as the site of, you know, creation, right? And what can we create through the body? We can create space. We can cultivate community. We can also foster movement. And how the kind of relationship between the body and the mind and the soul and that harmony and that and 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 the ability to the ability and also the ability for one to respect this process of communication and relationship between the mind the body and the soul how this can be a source of agency of liberation of resistance of all kinds of things it's just a net positive. I'm basically arguing why I think dance and collective dance is a community service and why I think, I hope in 2023, there's a lot of people who will be doing work similar to what Disco 993 did 
and getting spaces and creating these spaces for people to dance. So in today's section or in today's episode, I will be referencing three pieces of text. First, Disco and the Queering of the Dance Floor, written by Tim Lawrence and published in 2011. Liberation on the Dance Floor, written by Craig Jennix and published in 2020. And then Uses of the Erotic, the Erotic as Power in Sister Outsider, written by Audre Lorde and published in 1984. Let's talk about space. To literally take up space is to announce that we are not only here, alive and moving, but that we are here to stay. It is true that all or many is better than one. Taking up space is a huge component of what makes dancing such a fulfilling activity, right? Because le discotheque bring people from all types of backgrounds and stories together. Les discotheques sont un espace hétérogène. They are heterogeneous, genus, that word is crazy, spaces. They're spaces where different kinds of people come together. There's two really interesting ideas when you think about the kinds of space that is created from dance. First and foremost is expressiveness. A component that was really important back in the 1970s with uh, disco spaces is the fact that these were places where people were allowed to express themselves in ways that daytime spaces like school and work didn't allow them to express themselves. And it's also where you find other people who are existing for very similar reasons, but in very different ways, right? Here, and Lawrence talks about this, the main focus in these spaces are is to dance, right? Beyond the possibility of taking someone home, beyond the whole like we're going out, beyond anything, dance is the main activity. And there's a sense almost that you are able to lose yourself in the dance and you're not really doing anything that's particularly insane or scandalous or illegal, actually, because there were certain ways that queer people were not able to move back then because it was heavily policed. And Lawrence kind of talks about the dancing crowd and the dancing space and, and compares it to, you know, being at a, uh, a sports game where maybe you're focusing on something external or, you know, being in a different type of crowd. He likens it to this concept of the body without organ, which was developed by these two French philosophers. And I don't, it's a complicated process, like exp- like what the body without organs actually is. I, I tried to sit down and try to dumb it down so I can even understand it myself. He writes, and I quote, a decent, the, the body without organs is a decentered body that has ceased to function as a coherently regulated organism, one that is sensed in an ecstatic, catatonic, apersonal zero degree of intensity that is in no way negative, but has a positive experience. So my focus in this definition is ceased to function, which is like, there isn't like it kind of stops. The, 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 the space is now one, right? It's not really like a place where, you know, okay, this is like a wedding lounge or this is like a, 
a football game where we're all watching football or something like that because you kind of get everyone is getting lost in the space right I don't really, like it's such a it, it's a really interesting concept it's just I don't really know how to explain it very well but it's just basically where you know a body with organs has then a function right all all these organs have these different components and a function but a body that wouldn't have any organs would mean that it's just like a space with possibility right and essentially what it is is that being on the dance floor what's so beautiful about it is that it's filled with other people here for similar purposes and you're able to lose yourself so much that you're able to almost become one with the dance floor one with others right it's no longer anymore about like how you look or what you may be gaining or losing or anything but being a part of a flow and the way you're a part of this flow is interesting because it's you're losing into yourself and everyone else is losing into themselves and so you guys all become one and that's really a benefit i think of taking up space and lawrence writes that the very being of the dance floor crowd revolved around its status as a collective intensity and it's erotics of bodily pleasure so kind of an like the politics that come with being a bunch of bodies in one space that intersects with gay liberation, the feminist movements, the countercultural revolt against 1950s conformism. It's really this kind of interaction that confirms its disruptive sexual intent. It confirms that you are all together, even as you're losing into yourself, you are all together creating a space that is disruptive the second thing that's really interesting about taking up space is how the goal of the discotheque and of the dance floor is right like it's it's to dissolve yourself right even from all these different components of what a night out and what being on the dance floor means you are dissolving your concept of self so think about the fact that a lot of these dances happen at in the nighttime there's like this you know it's a protection of the night it's the darkness and whatever happens at night stays here and we don't talk about it the next day right the work of dance which provides a quote alternative experience of temporality meaning you don't have the same concept of time and productivity that you do when you're participating in other kinds of work like when you're on at the office and you have the tick, 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 tick of the clock, there's a certain way that you move with time and a certain way that you have a relationship with time. On the dance floor, when you're working the dance floor, time gets lost. The concept of time is very different. And this is also emphasized by the kinds of music that is played, right? Disco music um, in particular it was interesting because the whole idea of creating this kind of music is one where people can lose themselves one where people can enter this kind of alternate dimension it's it's an it's an entering a state where you're not necessarily abandoning the body or disassociating from the body in a way that when you're doing menial or repetitive work you might disassociate yourself from 
but it's more that you're aligning with a different kind of reality of your body. Um, there's also the dance floor itself, right? It's a confined and protected space where everyone else is engaging in the same activity. And there's this unspokenness of, well, if we're going to be losing ourselves, there has to be some kind of safety that is maintained, which I'll talk about a little bit more about the responsibility of the community to make sure these spaces stay safe. Also, sound was a lot more of the dominant kind of utility for losing yourself versus light, where there was a little less of that emphasis. And lights instead, when you think about disco lights, the whole purpose is for it to be very disorientating, to be all over the place. And the idea of space was particularly important in the 1970s and 1980s when dance and disco were particularly popular because at these time at this time so to give some context the piece by Lawrence uh the queering of the dance floor is referring specifically to 1970s American in particular New York disco culture and then the liberation on the dance floor is referring to the 1970s and 80s Canadian disco cult- disco culture In the 1970s, disco is really ripe to become as popular as it becomes because you had marginalized communities that were imposing their desires for liberation. You had counterculture messaging that was still very easy for a lot of people to digest. And also the club scene becomes a a refuge and a kind of safe haven in contrast to the realities of the street and protesting. So there was a bit of a shift in the 1960s and prior to then and prior to that there was a shift in the way even that people were dancing on the floor because before it was coupled and it was definitely heteronormative like it was the man who was leading in the dancing and this shifts in the 1970s especially as music festival culture as well kind of changes the way that people interact with music to a more solo kind of dancing and Lawrence writes about Lawrence talks about this by saying on the floor dancers did not experience the displacement of couples dancing as an individualistic and isolationist prelude to the neoliberal era but instead as a new form of collective soci- sociality that exceeded the potentially claustrophobic contours of the previous regime which is an interesting quote because it kind of points to how solo dancing becomes an important component because it allows people to center into their bodies and everyone is in this kind of position where you have now a different kind of collective way of expressing ourselves. It contrasts almost what was actually happening in real life at the time. And as much as obviously we understand that New York was a very important and some would even argue a central site for disco um, in the 1970s, Canada also was the LGBTQ2 plus community were using also the the dance floor as a space for people of all stripes to come together to be able to foster a sense of collective and personal agency and also to build meaningful connections. When 
reading and thinking about dance and disco culture of the time, I was thinking that today we can then consider three things. That number one, there is a necessity to continuously carve out spaces for open creation and sharing because freedom is never guaranteed. And when we think about, when we have a collective imagination about what that looks like, we can start considering what kind of work is possible for people a part of the community who do want to ensure this, who want to ensure that there's open creation and collaboration and spaces that exist to do so. Number two, we need to consider the necessity to resist and to curb absorption and dilution because the status quo is not friendly to our type of assembly. You know, mainstreaming is usually a sign for the end of counterculture movements. You know, when something, when when a movement that once was against something now becomes the culture, then it's not a counterculture anymore. And I think that in knowing this, it's important for us to kind of consider and to think if we want to create these spaces as places just to resist, just so they can be counters to the status quo, or maybe we want to think about how we can organize and rejoice in a way that doesn't necessarily center pervading systems of oppression. You know, how will we choose to live? Because anyways, every single day we understand, you know, the role of white supremacy, of all these different forms of control and oppression. But do we want to center those in the spaces that we're trying to create to escape? And then last but certainly not least, we want to also consider the role of the state and adjacent characters in these spaces. Who do they serve? Is it us and our safety or is it the states and kind of making sure that the gaze isn't doing too much? I think it is important to think about when we're imagining dance spaces, it is important for us to consider the idea of safety, right? You know, is police and security details serving the community or may that be more of an easy fix to these ideas of safety? And I don't know, it'd be important and I feel like it'd be worth it to consider how we can rethink and incorporate safety into what it means to organize events, to get a little imaginative with it. In talking about these considerations, this obviously then leads me to talk about the indelible relationship between dancing and queerness, which then also implies that there's an indelible relationship between dancing and race and dancing and liberation. Why these dance spaces are necessary not just for people to be able to express themselves and for them to be able to dissolve within themselves and be a part of something bigger and social, But it's literally a form of political action as well. So remember Lawrence has a quote where he essentially is talking about how activity and participation on the dance floor revolves around, quote, its status as a collective intensity and that it is this collective intensity that, quote, confirms its disruptive sexual intent. We also understand that space is given personality and identity by its occupants and the rules, hierarchies, divisions that are set by the occupants. And when you think about the dance floor as as a space, 
what I'm referring to is heterogeneous queerness. I'm referring to the dance floor and the dance spaces that were occupied by queer people of all stripes. But then these spaces also in the in the 70s and in the 80s also did have straight people attend these spaces. So these spaces weren't usually considered as like quote-unquote queer spaces, but there was an understanding of its radical nature because of the context of the time that they you know of the context of the time that these spaces were existing in. So for me, I will consider the dance floor as a queer space regardless of you know, the presence of straight people because it was just a different kind of manifestation. But in thinking about this, I then realized that the queerness of the dance floor implies two things. That dancing spaces are a service to the community and that these spaces are also a site of radical and political action. So I'll talk about them being a site for radical and political action while I also take the time to drag white queerness, in particular white queerness in Canada. But let's let's build up to that point. A huge importance for why these spaces were a site for radical and political action was not only were they the havens and the safe spaces against whatever the fuck danger was happening outside of these spaces, they were spaces that maintained an openness for, quote, homogenous notions of queerness and community to be challenged, Genix writes in Liberation on the Dance Floor, that it was really important for these spaces to be to exist so that queerness and its concept was not homogenized. It wasn't, we didn't fall into this path or into this trap of having one single identity of what it meant to be queer. So, to kind of talk about the homogenization of queerness and why it's so dangerous, I'm here to talk about a protest that happened in 2016 at Toronto Pride, a sit-in that was hosted by Black Lives Matter Toronto. Here's the context behind this, this story. Black Lives Matter Toronto was honored with the grand finale of the parade. They were given honored group status, which, which allows you to close off the parade. So... They're marching in the parade and they get to Young in College, that intersection, and they shut down the parade and they host a sit-in. In this sit-in, they invite indigenous activists and drummers and they just kind of sit around the intersection to essentially bring attention to anti-black violence that exists within the LGBTQ2 plus community and in the city of Toronto. And they formed and they provided a list of demands with 10 demands. So I'll post those demands also on my Tumblr so you can go through them. But essentially, a huge component of the demands that they had was more investment in creating sites for, quote, collective music participation for LGBTQ2 plus people of color. There was a particular demand to bring back a stage for South Asian performance. And then there was also one that demanded to double the funding for Blockarama, which is a street party that has had been occurring in Toronto for a long time, since the late 1990s. And another important 
demands that they had was the removal of police participation in the parade and specifically they were saying they said removal of police floats slash booths in all pride marches parades community spaces and before i continue with this and continue to talk about like the the, i'm gonna read a passage from the the author because the author really talks in really highlights why the homogenization that word is fucking hard to say why the homogenization of queerness is so dangerous and why it literally just means erasure of history i need to go on a little tangent because so at the time when this whole hullabaloo was happening the headlines in canadian media was focused on, one, the fact that Black Lives Matter shut down the parade, and two, that they were demanding for police to not be a part of the parade. Those were the big points of contention and of conversation for the the, 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 the Canadian media establishment and for, you know, the greater public. It was outrage. I like, how can you do this? You know, the parade is supposed to be this, like, fun experience, da, 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 how can you shut it down? And then complaints also about demand for the police because Canadian media and the greater Canadian public do not have the imagination to think of a world without police, right? And I'm just going to say, because me, I'm not a journalist in the traditional sense. I'm, I have no allegiances or no nothing to no objectivity. Me, I'm going to say how the fuck I feel. I was going to say something. I'm like, let me calm down a little bit. It's only the second episode. But I absolutely agree with not needing to have police in these spaces. Because when you really understand the history of pride, which to be really fair with you, I feel like most people have a general understanding of how pride started and how it started. It started with violence and it started with a violence that was in direct response to the kind of provocation that the police was inflicting on queer people. And so the patrons at the Stonewall Inn were like, we're fed up. Y'all is annoying us. So we're going to retaliate when you understand this and when you also understand another thing which since 2020 since that summer of 2020 since that black lives matter summer of 2020 i've been really avoiding talking about police brutality and black people's relationship to the police because the way that now people have it in their consciousness it's great that people are talking about it but what i always have to remind myself is you have a huge subsect of people who do not live the reality that black people live with when it comes to their relationship to the police and black people but to be really fair with you people of color indigenous people anyone who is marginalized because the police is not here to serve people who live in the margins they're not here to serve as a matter of fact we're seen as a threat to what the police is here to do so personally i was very young when the whole uh when this particular protest had happened so i it was not really in my consciousness i was aware of the fact that people were upset with black lives matter as they usually are but not for the the nuance behind why and as i've come to learn a little bit more about canadian media and how they tend to report on these particular issues and how the general public tends to approach these issues I'm just reminded time and time again that it is not everybody whose opinion I would like to hear on matters relating to the police and their presence in our society. Like, there's just a lot of people who, for them, they can only start understanding the fact that police is here to brutalize people who are perceived to be against 
the purpose of the police when there is a black or queer or person of color or indigenous body that is getting brutalized and dehumanized and that video is circulating online but for someone like myself i don't need to watch these videos i don't need to wait until the next tragedy strikes because there is a reality from my own experience with police my own my family's experience with police people close to me who have experienced certain things with police so all all i'm saying just to say is i don't give a fuck about like police having to be a a pride and and you know oh is that fair like there's queer police if you're a police officer like i don't really care about like your background your, your your sexuality all of that because you chose to be a part of a culture that is here to defend the state and is here to therefore brutalize anything that is perceived to be a threat to the state which often means your own quote-unquote people. So if you want to be a part of Pride, just take off the fucking uniform. And even then, I'm like, <laughs> but you know, I'm not going to be the, the the Pride police. You know what I mean? I'm not going to be the one who's going to be like, oh, well, these are the people. Blah, blah. I personally agree that police present as, presence as at Pride, to me, doesn't make any sense. And I also understand, too, there's the idea of, well, Pride TO is the like one of the biggest prides in North America in the world so there has to be police presence I understand and I don't think I'm against the fact that police has to be there to protect the people marching in pride but do y'all need to have a booth or a float at pride do I need to be seeing the Toronto police services like logo but in rainbow colored like please let's not do this nonsense now So anyways, that was my little spiel because I just had to get that out there because the time is also ripe for me to share my anti-police rhetoric. And yeah, I'm just not interested in people who don't live the reality. Like, I don't I don't really care about people's opinions on that. They are sitting at the intersection now for about 30 minutes and the parade only starts up again after the executive director of Pritio signs the list of demands, which... The next day, he was anyways like, well, I signed it because I wanted the parade to keep going without any signs of wanting to actually take up any of the demands. When we do think about creating these spaces for dance and creating these spaces for pleasure and for queer people to come together, that yes, it is for people to be able to once again express themselves and to be themselves, but there's a danger with treating queerness as merely an identity and a huge huge danger of that is the opportunity to homogenize what it means to be queer and that homogenization means having to erase the history of struggle that comes with queerness and that oftentimes is directly intertwined with what it means to be black what it means to be a person of color what it means to be a marginalized person in a different kind of way. And Genix writes this passage in response to um, the kind of backlash that came from Black, Life Matter, Black Lives Matter's um, list of demands. And he writes, 
The dominant public reactions dismissing Black Lives Matter TO's demands indicate two intimately connected perceptions about historical and contemporary LGBTQ2 politics in Canada, both informed by racism and more specifically anti-blackness. First, that gay culture continues to be imagined as a white domain that people of color need to be invited into the community and more troubling can thus be kept out, which my little point on that is just going to be, we all know it, queer people of color, when there's some kind of event that is like, everyone who's gay, come on, everyone who's queer, come on, we invite you, and you go, and it's a predominantly white-ass space, and the kind of... um feelings that you get of being in that space is not necessarily welcoming because it's almost like you have to be invited in you have to be allowed in are you actually queer are you actually queer continue the quote and second that certain collective actions are considered properly political within the ongoing lgbtq2 plus movement which Oftentimes in Canada is kind of painted to be something that exists within the parameters of judicial and legislative. The perceived utility of queer political action is often dependent on two things, the whiteness of the actors and the dismissal of spaces and actions deemed to borrow a phrase from Judith Butler, from Judith Butler, my apologies, from her essay, her 1998 essay, as merely cultural, which in that essay, she essentially talks about how white academics tend to erase more social forms of of organizing and of political action and dismiss them as merely cultural. They're not really they're not forms of action, of political action. They're not actually participating at all in the emancipation of queer people or of anyone, which is just categorically false. The author talks about how political actions that are deemed proper often turn to the state and they only frame LGBTQ2 plus, quote, desires within legislative and judicial frames. And He writes that this approach is both limited and limiting. (sighs) (laughs) Like, I don't really have anything to say. Like, the author says everything right there. Like, this is a little, just before I go on to community now. This is why I'm going to hearken back to my eternal teacher, my eternal flame, Bell Hooks. May she rest in peace. When Bell Hooks was asked, um, often throughout her life, like what your sexuality is, what's your sexual uh, orientation, she often identified with queer. And she was at this talk for the new school in 2014 called Are You Still a Slave Liberating the Black Female Body? And they asked her to expand on this one concept that she came up with, queer pa gay, meaning queer not gay. And she says, quote, as the essence of queer... I think of Tim Deans, who's a queer theory scholar. Tim Deans' work on being queer and queer not as being about who you're having sex with, that can be a dimension of it, 
but queer as being about the self that is at odds with everything around it and it has to invent and create and find a place to speak and to thrive and to live. I share this quote with you guys because everything that Jenix writes about, about the homogenization of queerness, is spot on when you start from a place where you consider queerness to be merely an identity, merely to be a way of moving through the world. So you only talk your your attach your queerness to who you're in relationship with, how you move through the world. When that is the limit to what queerness is to you, it is too easy then for queerness to become this homogenous idea. And it is therefore too easy to create this this system where certain people are considered to be the face and the forefront of queerness. And anyone else who comes and says, wait, hey, wait a minute, we have a lot of problems here, is now the enemy of progress. Now can be painted as somebody who is anti-queer. Bell Hooks really points to why it is important and I think this is something that I hope that as queer people of color indigenous queer folks black queer folks we can expand on because we already have a an empirical understanding of this but I hope that we can expand on this and and dive deeper and set more terms to this how queerness is about an awareness of how your existence is contradictory to the world you live in and about how it is from this conflict that you choose to create and to reimagine space for you to be able to speak openly, for you to be able to live happily, for you to be able to thrive in this life. It is an active expression I only share that really because I think it is important when I talk about queerness, I am talking about a state of mind, a way of seeing the world, a way of understanding the world. It's beyond just how I choose to identify because when you stop it at that, then this is why it is so easy for white queerness to dominate the conversation and to erase a history of struggle, resistance, violence, militancy. Because to live as a queer person is to be in constant contradiction to the world that you live in. But you don't have to consider that when you're white. So yes, there you go. That is my piece about space why it is important for space hi (laughs) to hold space and maintain connections is to declare that we are not only here to stay supported and vulnerable but that we have no plans to falter so we were just talking about how one of the implications of a queer dance floor, the dance floor being a queer space, is that dance spaces is a site of radical and political action. The other implication is that dancing spaces are a service to the community. Genix writes, quote, the sense of collective belonging and political agency attainable through participation in music cultures is formative for queer people. 
I mean, I feel like even for me, anecdotally, this is true because a lot of the ways that I think I've come to strengthen and develop my relationship with my queerness is through music, is through, you know, listening to other queer artists, you know, indulging in, I would say, queer adjacent, let's say, um, forms of music. So let's say K-pop, for example. Um, going to music events and concerts with my other queer friends and just dancing and letting loose into the night. The dance floor is an extension of what it means to be a queer person, for sure. So knowing this then, that means that there is a responsibility upon participants and organizers to assure a level of safety and care so that these implications can be met, so that this can be a place where people can come to discover themselves if nowhere else. So, some, you know, the thing about me is I'm, a, I'm an idealist, fundamentally. It sounds sometimes like I, I like to complain and just talk shit. I do it only because I love things deeply. You know, that's, that, that, that's, that's, my, that's how I show my love. If I, if I love something, I will talk a lot of shit about it. I will be very blunt about the things that don't be making sense for this thing because I want it to be better. So when I'm talking about these things, I will always do little points of like imagination or idealism or utopia. What? (laughs) Utopia. So that we can imagine the ideal, right? Because we can't be fighting for things just for the sake of fighting for things. We're fighting for love. So... Let's do a little exercise right now. In our desired reality, what does a safe dance floor look like? I think there's so many ways that we can approach this. But for me, off the top of my head, I can say, one, a safe dance floor feels or looks like, but also feels like. I think, one, it would definitely feel like a place of trust. You know, think about the places that you you feel safe in your mom's arms for example i feel like that's the only place (laughs) but i feel like then the dance floor should feel like being in your mother's arms like it feels like a place where you can lose yourself because you know you're supported and i think that this means that if you need for example to be able to step out you should do so if you you should be able to do so if you feel like you are under pressure from other people to owe you something you should be able to go somewhere and be like hey this person here is bothering me and collectively we deal with that person so i don't know off the top of my head that's just what i would feel like a safe dance floor would look like i think a safe dance floor would also look like somewhere that is a place that's accessible for everyone no matter the ability to be able to dance and to be able to move i think it's in it's important to consider this idea of safety and i did talk at the top saying that you know in community organizing i think it would be valuable to reimagine what we think safety it's also a place for fun it's a place for pleasure it's a place for connection and this is tied this is why you know it's important to not dismiss this kind of experience as merely just cultural or artistic things because fun and pleasure and connection as a queer person 
queer fun, queer pleasure, queer connection as a person of color, as a black person, is defiance. It's the kind of act that you are fundamentally not supposed to be engaging in. Fun, for example, is a release. It's a release and allows you to not let the kind of ego that you need to survive cut off access to the child in you, to the spirits that lives and rages on in us. So we need these spaces to have fucking fun. And also, as we've experienced in these past two to three years, connection is survival. Isolation, chronic isolation is deadly. It's literally destroying an entire generation. I can say that because I am a part of that said generation and I am <laughs> still dealing with the effects of hyper isolation. Um, I think fundamentally it's all about being brought back to our bodies, right? Being able to let go and feeling safe so you can have fun. S- trusting your senses and arousal and letting arousal teach you a thing or two. And also the art of community and vulnerability. So, let's do another utopa (laughs) exercise. But, in our desired reality, what does a dance floor that is fun, that invites pleasure, and that is rife for meaningful connection look like? Once again, it's utopic. So don't let any kind of voices that is like, well, that's not reality, come to your mind. Just let yourself dream. Because hopefully then, other people are also thinking about a dance floor that is open to these, that allows you to access this. The last thing that I'll talk about in the community um, side of this is how a huge benefit of not just also experiencing fun and pleasure and connection on the dance floor and also wanting to feel safe, like the whole experience, all of this interacts with one another because fundamentally... The dance floor has implications beyond the dance floor. Genix writes, quote, Feelings permeated bodies and enlivened individuals long after they left the dance floor. Disco's hold on dancers after we leave the dance floor is not just physical, but also something more capacious. To attain feelings of belonging, collectivity, and agency, even for a brief moment, can be transformative perhaps particularly for marginalized individuals. It changes us and our relationship to the world in which we live. So even for those couple of hours that you're on the dance floor sweating it out and whatever, that shit can literally transform the way that you move through the world because you at least got a sliver of the fact that there is possibility. There is possibility for me to feel like I belong somewhere to make to have to let me feel like I can connect with my body again that I have agency over who I am and how I'm in relationship with my body because you have felt what it means to be with other people who are doing the same and to connect with other people this little hour of dance that you're you you know that is happening is is it's it is a, it's a service to the community. It fucking makes people believe that they belong, know that they belong, understand that they belong, right? 
So I tell that to everyone who, anyone who organizes an event that's like cool and that I enjoy a lot, I'm always like, you know you're doing a service to the community, right? So thank you so much for doing that. Now, just to close this off, um, I will say that the reality is that dancing is not always an inclusive and not valuable but I would say more like it's not always an experience that people really gravitate towards because people have their reasons for not wanting to go out and whatnot so some people will argue that well you know it's not that important you're you're out here making a whole thing about dancing whatever I think especially for a lot of marginalized people there are many reasons for why the dance floor is not a safe space and for why it's not nightlife may not be an experience or a fundamental experience for you i really do implore those of us who do love to dance who do love these community events that require a certain level of vulnerability I do implore us to think and to imagine about the ways that we can take these things that we know we're good at, that we know we have the capabilities to do. So organizing and building connections with with people who have the space, um, promotion and people who obviously like DJs and people who, who, who handle the music. And I hope that we can just take up the space that we need take up the space that we need to ensure that our people can come out and do this shit and experience this kind of joy that we know is possible because i'm not here trying to tell people get up and go out and dance and this is how you're going to be so into your body no i am just saying that this is a place for which we can organize and we live in times that people are looking for these things that i'm talking about for space for connection for community for release for fun for pleasure for all of these things so let's keep let's do what we're good at let's keep doing what people what what people are good at what people are doing and let's try to center people like us let's try to center people who who want to show out but maybe in their day-to-days cannot show out let's show out for let's show up for our community this shit is about life i was gonna say i was gonna write that it was about survival but like i think it's about life more it's about being able to show and to understand that there is possibility there is a possibility to be openly unapologetically lovingly vulnerable vulnerable (laughs) it's trying to be really cute and use vulnerable but it's not happening but yeah um yeah i love to dance that's really it (laughs) so let me share a tmi for the longest time i never felt like it was okay for me to move my body in certain ways outside of an intimate place so like my room which is crazy because until I came to university I didn't I always shared a room so even that was limited um I never felt like I could dress in particular ways because a shirt 
that is regular on one girl is slut attire on me. I never felt like I could be too open and too free and too loud because the scandal and shame that I would bring to my family or that I would bring to the people around me weighed me down with a kind of guilt that was way too much for younger me to bear. I've always admired dancers and people who let their bodies guide them over their minds. You know, growing up, I very much have always, I mean, growing up, I'm still this person who very much operates from a very rational framework. I'm very methodical with the way I approach things. You know, that's why for a long time I played soccer because my biggest focus was, well, I'm in a team. I'm a part of a team. If we all fail, we all fail. If we win, we all win. And I played midfield in particular because I liked the idea of creating chances for people. So it was very much a mental game as much as as it was physical. And I stopped playing soccer in high school. And then I was kind of like, well, what's the activity that I'm going to pick up? Because I'm the type of person I have to be active and moving. I have to be playing a sport. And I picked up pole dancing, which pole dancing is still a very physical, obviously, and, and mental game. But because you have to, you know, really have the mindset to bear through fucking hard ass moves. But it's also, it also calls for you to be in touch with your body in a different kind of way that maybe being a recreational soccer player didn't and I have currently a lot of desires to learn how to dance to use dance as a gateway for me to reconnect with my body so that's you know nutrition and strength and flexibility and mobility and also rest but it's also like just how I can use my body's to send certain messages and how movement can help me rely a bit more on my senses over just my rational mind all the time. So this is where I link this whole discussion about dancing and the necessity of dancing. We talked about space, we talked about community, and this is now where I talk about movement, but link it to the kind of connection that exists between our mind, our bodies, and souls, and this link or this connection is the erotic. So after Disco 9-3, I was chilling and kikiing at home, and I picked up Sister Outsider because it's a book that I've been having on my shelf, but I'm like, bitch, I need to just read this. And I picked it up, and I flipped through the essays, and I landed on Audre Lorde's essay, Uses of the Erotic, the Erotic as Power. And this was really interesting. Before the essay, I actually read it. And before I define what the erotic is, I was always interested in sexuality and in sensuality and in, like I said, talking about dance and why I was very much gravitated towards dance. Because I always believed that if I mastered or if I devoted myself to learning about my body's like machine and and, and how my body operates, 
I honestly feel like I'd be untouchable. Like, I'm not lying to you guys right now. Like, I feel like I'd be very much untouchable in this world because beyond, I already have a mind that is able to create all kinds of narratives that has a logic beyond anything. But then to be in touch with my body and to also, like, know how to move my body and use the art of seduction. Hey, it's over for you bitches. (laughs) Hey, but the erotic. She goes on to define it specifically as a, quote, internal sense of satisfaction, and that once you've experienced it, quote, in honor and self-respect of yourself, you can require no less of yourself, or in honor and respect can require no less of ourselves, end quote. So the origins for the word um, erotic comes from the Greek word eros, eros, why did I say it like that? Eros, Eros, Eros. <laughs> like, what is this? It's 3 a.m. I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> but it's Eros is the personification of love in all of its aspects, and it's born of chaos. And as a matter of fact, actually, because if we're talking about Greek mythology, we are going to talk about astrology too. Astro- in astrology, Eros is an asteroid in your chart that can kind of give you insight about your erotic turn-ons, the things that turn you on, the things that get you going. So, yeah, just a fun little thing. Look in your chart for Eros. The erotic is not solely sexual. And this is something that my brain has to still sit with which is why i'm going to be talking about the erotic often because the opposite of the erotic is the pornographic and audrey lord kind of argues that the pornographic what it does is it is a repression of true feelings it quote emphasizes sensation without feeling That is such a radical thing to sit down and actually think about. Because, you know, we, we, it's in the culture, we always every now and then have these debates about porn and about pornographic imagery and about how we understand sex in our society. We don't, there's no feeling behind it. There's no meaning. You know, the debates that people be having on Twitter all the time, casual sex versus, you know, sex with a a committed partner and whatever. I think we don't have the proper, as a society, and we're going to talk about this a little deeper, we don't really have the language and we don't really have the um, the depth or the, the courage to go deep enough to really talk about how a lot of the ways we talk about the erotic, arousal, sensuality, senses, and these ideas can never it's always one of the two extremes it's always either just puritanical no talking about it just sanitize it like completely or it's always in a very vulgar lack of emotion kind of way and this is where i talk about two really important reasons why i think using well i think um audrey lord talks about it but i'm just gonna expand on it why the erotic is super it could be really an important point to be able to come back into our power so the first way is obviously in cultivating personal agency 
And in here, I'll talk about senses, the body, and disconnect and feelings. When we talk about senses, we are taught, especially as women in the society, people who are socialized as women, to never trust our intuitive messaging. As a matter of fact, we're really taught from a very young age that you should bypass whatever your body is telling you intuitively and seek outside inputs. Refer to external sources to understand why you're feeling the way that you're feeling. And Lord writes, quote, We have been warned against it all our lives by the male world, which values this depth of feeling enough to keep women around in order to exercise it in service of men, but which fears the same depth too much to examine the possibilities of it within themselves. Hey, she said it all. Like, it's just interesting to think about. And I don't want to make this point about like, you know, let's do a versus erotic versus pornography because I think there's so many layers to talking about pornography and I don't really think I'm equipped to talk about it. But definitely one of the big considerations and issues with the way we represent sex, not even, you don't have to think about porn even, you just need to look at advertising and how advertisings use sex it's in such a like either obscene way or either in a way that very much makes the woman asexual completely which at the end of the day these two uses almost always serve anyone but women the second idea is the body and why the erotic is a source of power when it comes to connecting with our bodies. Because what I think we need to understand is that disconnect from our body, from the body's senses, from the body's messaging, from, and just like a continuous like identification with the rational and the mind is a tool of self-policing. Because if it's not the state's, if it's not your job or your employer, if it's not your parents, you know, as a child, because children don't have the freedom, or we're talking about maybe even cultural um, forms of policing, the last resort is to ensure that we don't have connections to our own bodies so that it is easier for us to mistreat, dare I even say abuse, or to not respect our bodies. So a point of inquiry for me that I've been really thinking about in my relationship with my body is how can returning to my body as a friend, so not as a lover or a sanitized, um, not sanitized, but sterile, I should say, sterile entity be a source for, for ourselves. How maybe treating it as a friend. Because... In an effort to counter the limitations of body positivity and like the the kind of like misplaced idealism that body positivity has has kind of brought, and obviously to counter you know the alternative, which is like just dis- detachment from the body, people have tried to talk about this concept of body neutrality, and I think my issue that I've always had with the idea of body neutrality is there is still a dis. A disconnect from the body there is still a detachment from the body i think sometimes we need to understand that we live in a society that that our bodies are a main source of currency not literally for most of us but 
we have to dress up our bodies in ways that are going to present well for others. We need to have some kind of relationship to our bodies. And if our efforts is to be like to promote neutrality with our body, I think it it kind of erases the fact that your body was made like it it's it's your body. Like it's this is your body in the way that you move through the world. So at the very least, I feel like there should be an acceptance of your body, not necessarily a neutrality, because then you will make more of an effort to be with your body and to listen to your body and to it's it's like I said when with a friend you're not you don't have neutral feelings towards a friend because then you're not going to care for that friend cuz you're like well I have other friends that I I actually care a lot more for the very least there needs to be an appreciation a sense of respect for that friend so you know that you can show up to that friend in the ways that you need so lord has this quote that I really think is beautiful and I really think highlights why I do think that centering the body is important as much as sometimes we want to think that, oh, it's selfish. I think the way that we approach it sometimes in Western society can be very selfish. But she writes, quote, our acts against oppression become integral with self, motivated and empowered from within. This is why I'm putting this emphasis on the body as the site for action for this as the site for creation as a site for trust because you, we don't have individually control over the big movements in our society and as a matter of fact you even as a singular person don't have control over the person next to you the only thing we have control and agency over is our bodies is ourselves so resistance kind of feels a bit more empowered when it comes from this place And then the next consideration about personal agency is a return and evaluation of feelings. One of my lifelong goals, this is a bit of an offset, but one of my lifelong goals is to participate in the conversation that aims to show the similarities and the connections between science and religion. You know, how they both cause a lot of harm how they both attempt to be the authority in life and in knowledge, and how they are both very necessary in our seeking of knowledge. And Lord actually talks about how the desire to separate what is spiritual, what is psychic, what is emotional, and what is political, it doesn't serve anybody. And even less, it doesn't serve people who are marginalized. And she argues that a way for us to come back and and build this connection, she, she writes that, quote, the bridge which connects the spiritual and the political is formed by the erotic, by the sensual. And this is something that I've had to come to learn too, as once again, somebody who likes to think super rationally all the time. But your feelings are the first site for information. It's the first place for where you're going to be able to then follow through and to create the narrative that allows you to seek more information. So to learn to respect our feelings is to learn how to respect how we individually, how me in particular, I process information and how I'm able to seek that information and how I'm then able to take action based on the information that I get. I think that 
a big fear of the society that we live in is curiosity and honesty. And our feelings is what allows us an insight to that. Because you have to be honest with yourself to be able to get the information from your feelings. And then you also have to be curious to be able to go and start the process of validating these feelings of seeing if these feelings are just passing or if they're actually something that can change help you change your life lord just talks about how when you start moving with in your life with the erotic at the center you begin to demand from yourself and from everything that you're pursuing in life the joy and the satisfaction that you know that you're capable of because of the erotic. And the last point in all of this, because I've been going on for a long time, but super interesting. It's just such an interesting thing. And I'm like, this is this 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 discussion of the erotic will pop up again, I promise. But I think that moving and using the erotic, if it supports you personally. And if that is something that allows us to individually unlock a certain level of satisfaction, then logically speaking, collectively, it will allow us to support one another. Because if you're operating from a place of satisfaction, you can then help someone else unlock that as well. This is why disconnect and individualism creates a situation where we live now in a society where you couldn't even say hi to your neighbors collective resistance so invitation and satisfaction satisfaction to me is a lot more sustainable as a sensate than 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 sensation like just fleeting feelings or happiness because it's a trust building exercise with yourself it requires surrender Right? It requires you to lower your ego and to, to not always operate from that survival place. It requires honesty, once again, and vulnerability, that curiosity. Lord writes about systems that define good, either in terms of acquiring profit or systems that define human need in exclusion to the emotional and spiritual aspects of life. She writes about these systems and she says that these systems, quote, rob our work of its erotic value and its erotic power and life appeal and fulfillment. And when you when we live in these kinds of societies, the issue is that we only have very specific places and ways in which we are, quote unquote, allowed to be erotic. And namely, it's just in the bedroom within a monogamous heteronormative partnership right we talk about this all the time right like keep that shit to the bedroom that's often what a lot of people will say in response to queer people as to so that they can avoid being explicit in their homophobia you know as long as you keep it in the bedroom and whatever lord kind of talks about this quote simultaneous looking away and what this does and kind of what it means to push the erotic to just the privacy and the private corners, it allows for an ability to misname and to shame how people are aroused or to shame how people build connections or to shame how people build agency within within their lives. And this shaming 
allows for a silent acceptance of a distortion of the erotic. This is where the erotic now, it becomes violent even. And it becomes something that we can use to weaponize against people to police how they move in the world. So inviting more eroticism into our lives can be a form of silent resistance. Or it can actually be a form of resistance that helps others get into touch into touch with their own eroticism so vulnerability and openness have a lot less stake it feels a lot less weird to be vulnerable with somebody lord even says it like herself she writes quote that shame invites us to use each other as objects of satisfaction rather than to share our joy in the satisfying hey the last point that I'll be talking about, I promise we're done after this, guys. But it's just, I love, I love this topic so much. I'm so happy. Like, if you made it to the end, you're a real one. You're real. Because this stuff really just makes me so, like, I'm like, wow. Like, there's so, I don't know, there's just so much to say about this. But, like I mentioned, like, before, a point of interest for me is to talk about these ideas of sexualization, including self-sexualization, performance, um, sensuality, the erotic. I really, I think in an aim to be able to come back to my own power, I will be taking steps from Lord. I, I am going to start incorporating a lot more calls to eroticism and a return to the body in my work and I already began by saying by doing that my first performance live performance in a very long time was a piece called dreams where essentially I likened walking on your own path and following your own pace to dancing with time and there was a lot of erotic kind of innuendos in there but like I said earlier just right now an openness with self allows and it very much just equals to an openness with others. And this kind of flow can open space for creation. What it is, is creation, right? Because denying ourselves of feeling of our senses is essentially denying us of a significant part of the human experience, and this is how competition is a lot more valued over collaboration. And you know, me, I'm not even against competition at, at all. I love to compete with bitches. I love to show people that I'm better than them. But that's always because it comes from a place of, well, I have respect for you as my opponent. It's a rivalry that is based in respect. And that can only exist in a world that has this basis, this basis point where you are able to create with another person. And I think our capacity to love is plentiful. We just need the courage to do it. Because we live in a world that is reminding us time and time again that unless your love exists within certain parameters, it's not real love, right? That's why we value in our society romantic love over friendship. Courage is knowing that our capacity to love is plentiful, even in heartbreak, even in grief, even in loss. We never lose our ability to love unless 
we choose to shut that part out of ourselves. It's a choice that we make. It's courage. And it's the only choice you have to do is to be courageous to love. You know, in a time where emotional and mental fatigue is rife, more and more do we really need to choose between closing our ability and openness to love and to receive love or to to seek out those connections that will allow us to invite more satisfaction. Because people... they exist out there. I know, you know, people like to talk about how the dating scene is this and how this is, and it's hard with people and stuff. I know it's very difficult. But if you know that you're able to love openly, I, I do really think that we need to, as lovers, we got to do it more. As lovers of the world and lovers of people, we got to be more open about it. Because the more we close our hearts off, hoy, man, this shit is... Whew. Hard though. I don't blame people though. I won't lie. But Lord has this quote here, and, and, and this is my last quote for Lord from Lord. Who just if you have the chance to read this piece, it's a quick read, it's like four pages. It's a beautiful read. She writes, quote, to risk sharing the erotic's electrical charge without having to look away and without distorting the enormously powerful and creative nature of that exchange. Actually, that's the quote, but (laughs) I'll add to that and say that to make that risk is to live. Like that's really just what that quote is to make that risk is to live is to choose to live fully because we can choose to live in our minds and, and create these narratives in our minds and be like, well, I'm using logic and I'm rational. But what you're actually doing is creating a narrative in your mind and living about living a lie. That's what you're doing, you know? So I do think that I'm going to explore this idea, these ideas of the erotic a lot more through dance, but also through other forms of arts. Because the erotic allows us to reach our life force energy, our limitless creative well. And it's self-affirming. And it is spiritual. And it is radical. And it is queer. And it is woman. It is everything. So, that's the erotic. Hey. Check, guys. I love that. I love that so much. Like, ah. Enjoy it. Enjoy it thoroughly. And thoroughly enjoyed this whole episode, doing this episode. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So we made it to the end. We've been re- I've been recording for what two hours, almost two hours now. And like I said, if you made it to the end, you're realer than real. And I'm always open to feedback and conversation. If you have anything that you want to add, that you want to contest, that you you want to reflect on. Please, please, let's start the conversation. Um, I don't, I, I've been thinking about this. I don't know if I want to do like a Discord chat once, one day. I do, I would like to, but I know that there, I have to probably get moderators. I probably have to, I have to build an audience also first. But on the Musings with Mona Instagram account, I always post like the agenda or the journal for the episodes. 
So if you would like to be in conversation with me, please comment on the journal post and share however you felt. You could be saying like, bitch, listen, I did not think that this shit made sense. I'm like, okay, I will, let's, 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 let's talk about this. Let's, let's converse. Um, but yeah, definitely enjoyed this episode, like making this episode, fleshing it out and then sharing it with you guys. And just to quickly close, I will share my hopes for myself in this year of dance. I hope I go out to more events where I get to dance. I hope that I learn um, more about dancing and also learn to take care of my body a lot more and build strength and flexibility and mobility so I can be able to use the entire range of motion that my body has and also just to take this opportunity with dance to you know learn about fueling my body and resting my body and really centering that in my life so I don't get too caught up in whatever day-to-day stuff is happening because it's been too many years of disconnect with my body I'm ready to come back home I'm ready to come back home so that's the hopes of myself I also the hopes for myself in this year of dance is romance like <laughs> I have to say it guys my fantasy is I'm on the dance floor and so sexy person pulls up and like yeah I was watching you da 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 and it's very key that that person's sexy because hey let me let me not speak too much da let me not speak too much. But my hope for yous in the year of dance is that, you know, you get to have some experience, dancing experience that really puts you in touch with your body, puts you in touch with the power of collectivity, the power of belonging, the power of of love, to be really fair with you. So whether that means going to like the club or going to a dance event or going to a concert or a festival or whether that honestly means with your partner having a nice cute little dance um, dance night while y'all are y'all cooking food and drinking some wine, do a little dancing dance. Whether that means going to the park and joining Zumba in the park, whether that means even learning a K-pop dance or two, I hope that you have some kind of beautiful creation moment with dance, to be honest. Yeah, that's my hope for yous. But that's the end of the podcast. Thank you guys for being with me. Um, once again, interact with my, with my shit, please. Um, my personal Instagram is Mona Monet with two A's. And I have my link tree on there. So everything is in there. My YouTube is in my link tree. My Tumblr my medium my pinterest even is in there my spotify is in there just anywhere where i may be active online is there so if you'd like to stalk snoop see me i'm on all of them things not as active on everything but i'm there um and then the podcast instagram is musings w mona so musings with mona and it's on there that i hope to start conversation about the episodes and yeah i'm also on tiktok too but you know i don't be using tiktok like that i kind of use it for foolishness but yeah that's that's that so um thank you guys for being here again with me and thank you bye